We're going through the book of Exodus, the Old Testament book of Exodus. And so last week we kind of looked at the background of Exodus and where the story starts out. And, uh, and we're going to continue on week by week looking at the major passages in this Old Testament book. And uh, so to give you the background that will be, uh, that's necessary for what we're looking at tonight, the background of the story is this, okay? God has entered into, to, into the world to save it. God has a plan to save the world. And the way he's going to do it is by choosing people to carry his promise to uh, save the world. And so God's people, he, you know, in the, if you know the book of Genesis, you might have heard of Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. And these men are men that carry the promise through history. And at this point, God's people are in slavery, though. So God's promised to use this people to save the world, Israel, but they're in slavery in Egypt. And they've been enslaved for 400 years. So it's not looking so good for God and his promise and his people. And then uh, last week we saw that Moses was born. And Moses, uh, because of the circumstances of his birth, was able to grow up in the palace of Pharaoh. And it seems like he's going to be the guy to set Israel free. You know, he's God's inside man, but then he screws up and he kills a guy and he has to flee and he runs away. And so he spends 40 years in a land called Midian. And uh, meanwhile, he gets married, has a son and becomes a shepherd. And meanwhile... God's people, the people that God says he loves, are in slavery. 400 years or so worth. And that's where we pick up. So let me read our passage for us tonight, and we'll spend a little time uh, looking at it a little more deeply. So you have it up there, Exodus 3. And my phone is ringing. Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will, si- I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Uh, Let me pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, we need your help as we look at your word. Uh, We need you to make sense of it to us. We need you to change us by it, and we pray that you would do that now as we look at it together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So as you guys know, I'm sure, last week was Martin Luther King Day, last Monday. And I don't know if you saw this, but if you get the Yukon emails and you actually read them, I don't know if anyone reads those that go out from like Susan Herbst or something like that, but on Martin Luther King Day, she sent out this email that was actually pretty interesting. Um, And it kind of pertained to the question of how did Martin Luther King become the great man that he was? Um, You know, most people would argue that he was one of the greatest men of the 20th century by far. And... uh, he did amazing things and he was just, you know, everything he's written and everything we know that he said is so profound. And uh, if you are wondering how he became who he was, what doc- Dr. Herbst said in her email, which I found interesting, was that part of what made him who he was was that he came to Connecticut. Uh, he grew up in the South, and, uh, but he, would spend, he spent a few summers working up in Connecticut and that was his first exposure to life Uh, that was integrated, where races were integrated and it wasn't this like, it was just kind of a normal part of life up here at that time, not so much in the South. And uh, so he came and he had this experience of being in Connecticut and it shaped who he, it was part of what shaped who he was, it's part of what shaped what he became. Um, In the Bible, in the Old Testament, the greatest person in the Old Testament is Moses. Moses, like to the, to the people of Israel, Moses is the man. Uh, and later in uh, the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, there has not arisen a prophet like Moses ever since he died. Uh, in the book of Numbers, it says that Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth. So he's this amazing guy. But the question that I want to kind of look at tonight is how did he become that? How did Moses become the leader and spokesman for God that he was. And I want us to see that the answer is in our passage tonight. He encountered God. He encountered the living God. Um, I wonder what you think about encounter, the ways we encounter God today. Uh, if you were to ask anyone, I'm sure they would say, like, yeah, I'm interested in the concept of encountering God if he's there. Like, I want to know about that. I want to encounter God. And so what I want to look at is what we can learn from Moses' experience of encountering God. Um, 
And what I want to, you know, I don't know where all of you stand in relation to God or what your experience of God has been, but this would apply whether you've never encountered God or if you've encountered God uh, throughout a lifetime of following Jesus. Um, you know, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, the principles are the same. And so what we're going to look at is encountering God. Where does it begin? What is it like? And how will you change? How will you be different? So first of all, where does it begin? Uh, look at the first couple verses of our passage up there. Uh, in verse 2, uh, we can see that it begins by Moses turning aside. Verses 2 and 3. Uh, in verse 2, Moses sees something inexplicable, right? It doesn't make any sense. There's this bush that's burning, and it doesn't stop. Like, it's burning, it's on fire, but it's not consumed. It stays burning, and so he's intrigued. And in verse 3, if you look, it says, he goes, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Um, these two verses are really the building blocks of what an encounter with God is. Uh, something draws us and we respond. We turn aside from what we're doing. Uh, I talk to a lot of students. You know, what I do is I hang out on campus with college students like you, and it's what I love to do. And I talk to a lot of them about God and what's going on between them and God. And for most, I would say, they would say that God feels distant. Maybe you feel that way too. Um, God often feels distant to all of us. And... Uh, there could be a lot of reasons that that would be, but there's a basic and simple and probably the most common one uh, that we can glean from this passage, and that's basically this. It's that we rarely stop what we're doing to go and see. We rarely stop what we're doing. Uh, you know, we, we're intrigued by God, but it's not enough for us to put down our plans and go spend time with God, to actually go. Uh, part of the reason is because we're really good at multitasking and we're all busy and uh, so we do a lot of things at once and we don't really ever pick up our head to even look, you know, like if there were a burning bush, you know, maybe we wouldn't see it. Um, Maggie and me, we, that's our baby Margot back there, she's six months old, uh, just about, and uh, kind of because of our stage in life, we're homebound a lot. And uh, because of that, we've been watching a ton of TV lately because it's just kind of like you go crazy and you just need something to do. And so we watch a lot of TV. And one of the things we notice about watching TV together is that like, some t this happens all the time recently where like a commercial will come on and Maggie will say, I hate this commercial. Or like, I really like this commercial. And I'll kind of look up and be like, I've never seen this, but like, how do you know all these commercials? And what we figured out is that when a commercial comes on, what I do is I pull out my phone and I like check email, check sports scores, check Facebook, check whatever. And then, you know, whatever watching comes back on and I'm back. Um, it's amazing the things that I can, like, so I've seen all these commercials, like, I've heard them, they're going on right in front of my face. It's amazing what I can tune out because I make myself busy. I tune it out because I just put something else, in, you know, closer to my face than the TV. And I want to suggest that we approach life that way often. 
You know, we've got our stuff that we need to do and the stuff that's on our minds. And even if God were trying to get our attention, we might not notice it. And, but we still feel like God is distant. Um, what this passage shows us, and what I want to suggest to you, is that an, a real encounter with God can't happen while you're multitasking. An encounter with God begins with the idea that God is something, you know, it's, I can't just like haphazardly squeeze him into this like portion of my day or my, you know, my five-year plan. Like God, if God is God, then God's everything. Um, in this passage, Moses takes a detour to encounter God. And, you know, he could have said like, well, I'm a shepherd and these sheep aren't going to watch themselves, so I'm going to stay here. Uh, Instead, he goes and encounters God. What does it mean for us, though? What it means is that encountering God requires that you be unproductive for a while, which is a difficult thing to do at UConn because everyone is scrambling at UConn and you feel like you're worthless if you're unproductive at UConn, but encountering a real encounter with God will require you to stop and encounter Him. Uh, no matter how foolish you may feel or foolish it may look. Uh, how do you do that today? You know, we don't see the burning bush today, but uh, we have the Bible. We have group, fellowship groups like this, Bible study, church, prayer, uh, gathering among friends that believe. There's all these ways that we can encounter God. And if you're not stopping what you're doing for these sorts of things, of course God feels distant. Of course he would feel distant. Uh, to d- encounter God, you'll have to stop what you're doing. Um, and it's interesting to, you know, the way God does it with Moses, as you think about what that would be like in your life, God kind of, there's a detour in this story where he takes a detour, but he's on like a life detour, like a 40-year life detour where he was going to be the guy to save his people from the inside. And he's like, it's all fallen apart. And may, you might feel like your life is on a drastic detour as well. And maybe you're not in a place that you thought you would be or want to be. But I want to suggest to you that that could be the beginnings of God drawing you toward the little detour of encountering him. Um, So that's how it begins. Now, what I want to look at next is what it's like. Or another way to say that is like, how do you know it's him? How do you know you're encountering the real God? And the simple answer is, you know you're dealing with the real God if it's a God of fire, like in this story. It's not an accident that God appears in fire in this story. In fact, in the whole Old Testament, God, like, as he leads his people out of slavery and through the wilderness into the promised land, he leads them in a pillar of fire. And I want you to think for a minute about fire, right? We love fire. Like, we have bonfires at our house that a lot of you guys have been to all the time. And we kind of just sit there and we stare at the fire because it's lovely, right? And it's warm and it's beautiful. Uh, But at the same time, it's extremely dangerous, right? Like fire is both extremely lethal and dangerous and extremely lovely all at the same time, which gets at the, you know, it comes out in this passage when God says that Moses is on holy ground. Uh, Fire is a picture of holiness. 
Uh, it's something, the word holy literally means something like other, something set apart, something distinct, something pure. And it's no coincidence that God uh, reveals himself in this way in the fire because he's a holy God. And it goes on, you know, there's this exchange between God and Moses where Moses says like, well, what should I say? Who should I say you are? And when I go to the people and God says, you can tell them my name is I am. Uh, you know, we could spend all night just talking about what on earth that means, but at the very least what it means uh, on its most basic level is I am not on your terms. Uh, I am other. Uh, like, I am bigger than you can imagine. Um, and what that means is God's not necessarily who you want him to be. The way you know that you're not dealing with the real God is if he's exactly, if he has all the same opinions as you do, and if he's exactly the way you want him to be, and if he never challenges you, and if he can never say you're wrong. That's how you know you're not dealing with the real God. You know, imagine any relationship with any person that never challenged you or could say you were wrong. That's not really a relationship, right? That's not a real person if they can't speak back to you. Um, that God, you know, the God, that God doesn't actually exist. The real God that we see here is a God of fire. He is holy. And, you know, look at Moses' response, right? He hides. Um, from the holiness of God, Moses shields his face. Uh, one of my favorite, you know, probably one of the best series of books all time, of all time, I quote it all the time here at RUF, is the Chronicles of Narnia. Any Chronicles of Narnia fans? Um, it's great. If you haven't read them, you need to. And then in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, which is uh, it's the first in the series where the kids go to Nar- from our world to Narnia. And at the beginning of that book, uh, the children, Lucy and Susan specifically, are kind of figuring out what this world Narnia is all about. And they're learning about Aslan, the, the lion who represents Christ in these books. And, um, and they, they don't know he's a lion at this point. And so listen to this. Lucy says, it says, is he, is he a man? Asked Lucy. And they're hanging out with the Beaver family. And so uh, it goes on. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Beaver, Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what Moses learned at the burning bush, I want to suggest to you. He's not safe, but he's good. And that's the great mystery of God is, you know, how could that be? How could he not be safe but still be good? Uh, And if you look at the passage, like, the amazing thing is that Moses doesn't get destroyed here by God. Uh, 
because we know about Moses already. We know his story, and he doesn't have the greatest like background. Uh, he's done a lot of things wrong already. And did you notice how he's like kind of whiny in this passage to God Himself? And he's standing on holy ground, and you know God asks him to remove his sandals. But like, could that actually like, what does that do? Um, how does Moses? not just get utterly destroyed here in the presence of God. And what we need to see is that this bush is really like an illustration for God. Uh, How can it be on fire and not consumed? How can God both be holy, this God of fire, and still be good to Moses and still be good to his people? How can it be that Moses is not destroyed here? Uh, How can we encounter a God of fire, a holy God, and not be destroyed? And the key to figuring that out in this passage is in verse 2. Did you notice how in verse 2 it says that it it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame? Which is a kind of weird way of putting it, right? The angel of the Lord. But yet, it doesn't, you know... There are obviously angels in the Bible, but this doesn't seem to be like one of the angels because it speaks as God in the rest of the story. So it's the angel of the Lord, but it speaks as God. And people have thought long and hard about this. And the only real solid conclusion you can draw from is that this has to be a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. Like, this has to be God himself. Like, it can't be a created angel. This has to be God himself. In other words, Jesus speaking to Moses out of the bush. And if if you hear that and you're like, wait a minute, that sounds kind of strange. Uh, If you ever read, last semester in RUF, we went through the Gospel of John. And do you know what sent Jesus to the cross in the Gospel of John? Do you know what made people so angry with him that they wanted to crucify him, the Jewish people? It's because they came up to Jesus and they said, how can you challenge us? We're the children of Abraham. And Jesus responded, before Abraham was, I am. That's what made them want to crucify him. And really, the cross is the ultimate picture of the fire of God, right? The cross is, if you want to know what the ultimate burning bush is, it's the cross. Because we deal with, you know, when we come into the presence of a holy God, we tend to do one of two things. Either uh, minimize his holiness and kind of be like, he's not, you know, kind of bring him down to our level or kind of exaggerate our own and be like, you know, bringing ourselves up to his level. And the cross says, no, he is holy. You guys are not. As God allows his only son to pay the penalty for sin that sin deserves as he dies on the cross, what you see is that this is a God that does not mess around. Like, this is a holy, you don't mess around with, this is a God of fire. But at the very same time, as you see that picture, you see just on top of it, the same picture, it's a God of love who will stop at nothing to rescue his people. To be with the people he loves. That's the answer to the great mystery, right? That's the burning bush. God is so holy that he came up with a way 
so that he could be with his people that are screw-ups like Moses in Israel. And it comes at the cost of his own death. He does it. He accomplishes it. How do you know if you're encountering the real God? If you encounter a God that is at the same time not safe and yet very, very, very good to his people, to sinful people like us. That's how you know you're encountering the real God. And now, kind of in closing, how will that make us different? How will that change us? How will we be different? Well, look at Moses. What does Moses go on to do? The way encountering God will make you different is that you'll start to go where God is calling you to go, no matter how silly it might sound, or no matter how scary it might sound. Think about Moses, you know, going back to Egypt where his people are, you know, and taking a bunch of slaves out of Egypt and going to another land where there's a bunch of people there that think it's their land. Uh, it sounds totally ridiculous, right? But Moses goes. He goes where God's calling him. Uh, you know, for us, that means it'll, we'll start to do silly things, seemingly silly things like stopping what we're doing so that we can encounter God. Uh, you'll start to become an enigma to people around you. The people that know you best will start to see you as an enigma, kind of like a, a burning bush of sorts to other people. Uh, and people will begin to wonder about you. Uh, people should want to know, like, okay, I think I know this person, and I know that they're not perfect or anything. You know, they're not better than me, but they seem to be connected to God. How is that? In our passage, you know, Moses whines a little bit, <laughs> and uh, it's not even quite settled that he's going to go yet at this point. But, you know, the reason that God gives him to go, the reason that trumps all the other reasons is God says, but I'll be with you. You know, Moses is like, but, 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 and God says, but I'll be with you. And that's the last thing, you know, when you encounter God, what you'll become is someone who carries within you the fire of God himself. And the hope would be, and what this group is all about, is that other people would encounter God through us. So let me close and pray uh, that God would make that so for us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you know what we are like uh, you know that we are quick to avoid you. You know that we are quick to uh, get busy with other things and not take notice of you or what you might be doing in our lives or in our world. Uh, we pray that you would enable us to uh, respond. Uh, we pray that you would enable us to encounter you uh, in a real way through your word, uh, through fellowship with other believers, through prayer. Uh, we pray that you'd make us different. We pray that we would be people uh, through which other people come to have these same kind of encounters. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.